are listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and this podcast was recorded on December 5th, 2023. Brett Lowry, our head of special situations, moderates this podcast. I'm going to turn it over to him. Welcome to our latest podcast, uh, the Academy Securities Geopolitical Intelligence Group um, on the war between Israel and Hamas uh, and the continuing implications for the region. Uh, Today, I am joined by Major General James Spider Marks, our head of geopolitical strategy, Peter Tura, head of macro strategy, Maria Donnelly, an associate in geopolitical strategy here at Academy, and I'm Brett Lowry, head of special situations at Academy Securities. Before we kick off the podcast today, I want to do a quick briefing on our VETS ETF. This podcast is brought to you by the Academy VETS ETF, a veteran impact ETF focused on providing market-based returns while investing in mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities that support veterans. VETS with a Z invests in residential mortgage loans to active duty service members and veterans, as well as loans to veteran-owned small businesses. To learn more, please visit academyetfs.com or contact your broker. Academy ETFs is offered by Academy Asset Management, the Asset Management affiliate of Academy Securities, a registered broker-dealer. So without further ado, I'll set the table here real quick before we pass over to General Marks for some of his latest perspective. Uh, But today we will focus on the continuing war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Following the end of the ceasefire, Israel has gone back on the offensive, especially in southern Gaza. Um, There are risks of escalation everywhere. Obviously, we've seen a lot of strikes uh, by U.S. aircraft into Iraq and Syria against Iranian-backed proxy militia forces, and in Yemen uh, against Iranian-backed Houthi rebels uh, with respect to their attacks on commercial shipping um, and U.S. naval assets in the region. And it is likely only a matter of time before the U.S. strikes back against those forces as well. Uh, We will also touch on Russia, China, their roles in the conflict, but obviously also the ever-evolving geopolitical situation in both of those countries, and of course, the macroeconomic implications of a potential escalation and other things going on around the world. General Marks, I'll pass it to you. Brett, thanks very much, and and thanks for everybody for joining us uh, today. Um, I think where we are in the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza is the there are several narratives that surround it at this point. Number one is, is this a fight that's going to expand? What is the likelihood of expansion between the United States directly and Iran? How is that going to play out? I think the second thing, and we we certainly will talk about that. And then the second thing I think we should look at is we're looking looking at a shift in the Israeli strategic objective as this fight has unfolded. And I think it's probably going to play out over time. And that is from the destruction of Hamas to the return and recovery of hostages. At the present, those appear to be irreconcilable, that there is great difficulty trying to do both of those at a level that the international community, which certainly has a voice, not a vote, but a voice in all of this, would prefer to see the return of the hostages And then the discussion of Hamas has now evolved into a discussion of the potential for a two-state solution and uh, the activities that have certainly ended up, the Israeli activities on the ground and through the air that have certainly ended up punishing the Palestinian people as well for very obvious reasons that we've all been um, very much um, presented to us over the course of the last month and a half of this conflict that's taken place in Israel. So... 
the the thing to keep in mind is that the United States does not have any desire to expand this fight to go after Iran in a kinetic kind of a way. There are others ways, obviously, that we can employ through those other elements of power to try to resist or restrain Iran's activity, not only in Gaza, but also Iran's activities, as has been laid out at the front by Brett very, very well, its application of force through the use of proxies. Both Hezbollah and Hamas certainly have been kinetically involved in this fight in a very significant way. The Houthis in Yemen have as well, threatening the transit of U.S. naval vessels through the Gulf of Aden and attacking those that were in the Eastern Med through the use of drones and, and uh, missile fires. And I think under this type of a dynamic where the, the tolerance level that, uh, that Tehran has established for the activities of all of those proxies is very, very low. In other words, they've established some boundaries, but there's a lot of activity that's taking place in between those boundaries that gives the initiative to those proxy forces. We can't allow that to continue to accelerate. And the United States realizes that clearly we can't afford to lose the momentum and we can't simply respond in a way that might be effective tactically, but doesn't alter the strategic dynamic. That strategic dynamic does not include an expansion of the fight against Iran. That is what we need to keep first and foremost in our mind. And now looking at the, the transfer or at least the recovery of the hostages vis-a-vis -vis the destruction of Hamas. Clearly there remain over 130 hostages that, uh, that Hamas controls in some capacity. Now, many of those hostages belong or are in the control of what I would call surrogate organizations, mafia-like groups that exist, criminal type organizations, but let there be no doubt, Hamas knows where they are and they know what the situation is of, of, uh, of those hostages. The disproportional release of Palestinian prisoners and hostages back to Israel, Palestinian prisoners back to, back to Gaza um, is going to run out of steam at some point. But the only leverage, the only leverage that Hamas has is the hostages. Were they to give up all the hostages, which clearly they will not, they would lose any benefit that they've achieved so far tactically, and the IDF would go about the business of destroying Hamas quite quickly. The challenge that we have right now is the release of prisoners in Israel would go to the release of known and uh, known and have been found guilty of terrorist activities. The Israeli government will not allow for the release of those terrorists, those killers to go back to Gaza. That isn't going to happen. So that's the conundrum where we are right now. Who can Israel release at this point? And is that a sufficient indicator to Hamas that they can now release hostages? I think that's where we're caught. But the world's narrative, the vilification of Israel is quite surprising. But the world's narrative is Israel must stop the fighting. We need to focus in on the hostages and their wherewithal and their ability to return their health, their safety, the reunification of those families. We totally understand all the humanitarian efforts that need to be in place to achieve that. The challenge remains, how does Israel now move the objective, the strategic objective to destroy Hamas to the back burner at the expense of trying to return hostages? That's the challenge because Hamas is hopeful that the international community will step in, create some third party force that will then allow for a brokered ceasefire or a pause, an extended pause of some sort 
as they release a couple more hostages so that what they've changed is the dynamic. They have stalled sufficiently. They can survive, live to fight another day. Israel now has a longer horizon in terms of its strategic objective to destroy Hamas, but the near-term objective is the return of hostages. So I think that that's the dynamic we're looking at right now. Brett, let me turn it back to you. Sure. No, thank you, sir. And I'll I'll jump to Marie in a second, but one quick follow-up question because um, I want to get the perspectives of both of you on this one, obviously Peter as well. What is the end game here? Uh, I mean, the destruction of Hamas in its fullest form will likely take months. Uh, and there's obviously been a lot of talk about, you know, that it, uh, it's it's going to be inachievable to destroy um, the concept uh, and the ideology. With another ceasefire likely to be put on the situation here in the next few weeks and obviously and outside pressure um, from Israel's neighbors in particular, what do you think the Israeli strategy for the next two weeks will be? Um, and obviously, as they go into Khan Yunus, there's a lot of stories about, you know, forces assembling. Um, this is going to be a street-to-street, house-to-house, building-to-building battle with, obviously, hostages in the area likely as well. Is the Israeli strategy for the next two weeks to just further the campaign as further as possible with, like, the expectation that Egypt, Jordan, UAE, Saudi, the United States, EU will start to come in and pressure for another round of ceasefires? Well, and it, Brett, if I can follow up on that, I also have a question, I think, uh, to Spider, because what does the liquidation of Hamas look like? Because if the U.S. and all regional partners are pressuring, are still hoping for a two-state solution, but you can't have a two-state solution with Hamas. Israel has been very clear about that. Do they mean the destruction of all known members of Hamas? But what if when you conduct, like you said, you're not going to eradicate the ideology. Every time you conduct an airstrike, you kind of have the potential of creating more future terrorist sympathizers. So what does that destruction look like? What is kind of sufficient for Israel to call that, to, to say we have achieved our goals? And then I, I think I have the same questions of what do the next two weeks look like? Because as international pressure is going to continue to mount against Israel, and as the global community will continue to vilify Israel, as we've seen over the last week, Israel will likely have less and less space to maneuver. So are they going to go as far as they can right now before that pressure mounts, or are they going to kind of pull back and try to not play nice, but stay within those kind of boundaries? And will that benefit them in any way? You, you know, Maria, that, those are great questions. I think the definition of success, when, when does the IDF make a determination that they had mission, mission accomplished? Um, I would say that goes to uh, an acknowledgement of, and a, a public acknowledgement of what the capabilities were of Hamas a priori 7 October. And then as a result of the operations by the IDF, what is the status of that capacity now? So who remains of the political and military leadership? Do, does the IDF know where they are or have they killed or captured a percentage of those individuals? And they declare this, what, for lack of a more precise term, this battle damage assessment. They come back and they indicate, this is where we are in this fight. Um, and Israel, only Israel is going to be able to make the declaration of when the mission is accomplished. To your second point, which is a really good one, I think Israel, for the most part, 
looks at the international outrage that exists right now, they acknowledge it, they embrace it, but they're essentially not going to alter their plan of operation, what they've been able to achieve on the ground, and the desire to achieve those ob objectives in as quick a time frame as they can. The one partner that they do listen to is the United States. And I think this administration has very clearly cautioned um, the, the Israeli government to be far more, far more uh, deliberate in their attacks, far more, they've used the term precise, precision attacks and precision targeting is a matter of degrees. It's not a video game. There isn't a clear definition of what precision means. So even in a precision targeting environment from the air and on the ground, innocents will be killed. That's the bottom line. So I think Israel is listening to the United States. Israel had, the IDF is a professional force. They understand the implications of what they are doing. And they're trying to level the objective to destroy Hamas against the clear desire to try to minimize exposure of their own force and the damage on the ground to the innocents that are sadly and unfortunately and tragically a part of this war. So I, I think what we're, what we're seeing right now is Israel is in a rush. You're exactly correct. Israel is trying to lock in the rates right now. They're trying to achieve a level of success so at some point they can say, we understand the international community, we understand the desire for some solution, some solution strategically, which is the discussion point of what does, what does Gaza look like going forward? It's just not the next Gaza, it's really the Gaza after next. What is the strategic implication? What can this, what can this look like? Is it a Gaza that we've seen over the course of decades or is there some other kind of a, as we've described very simply, a two-state solution of some sort, which many who have studied this all their lives would say it's the best bad solution, but it is the first solution necessary to build trust and trust only grows over time. So we're not gonna move from military operations to a succession of military operations to a solution that the world's gonna be pleased with. What we're going to see is, I think, an acceleration of military operations, a desire on the part of the IDF to, at some point, stop, declare victory, turn Gaza back over to some international community. Israel is not going to be a part of that. They are not going to occupy Gaza. So there is some international organization of some sort. The community rises up. Is it the Arab League? Is it the EU jumps in? Is it the United Nations? And so you're going to have an interim governance body it cannot be Hamas, it, whatever, it could be the Palestinian Authority. They've raised a hand and said, maybe, is that the, the best solution moving forward? That certainly is preferable to Hamas. So the, the big question mark is, what does this look like going forward? But I think you're absolutely correct. It's in the nearer term than the deeper term. But bear in mind, the destruction of Hamas remains the objective. Israel may declare success in terms of that objective, realizing that they're not close enough. They begin a strategic campaign to eliminate the leadership of Hamas. That could I take over the course of years. Sorry, I think that there's also kind of, there is a secondary objective I think that Israel is pursuing, which is deterrence against a lot of its neighbors. Um, just to kind of show that if you do this, 
all hell will rain down on you. And I think that in, that's part of the calculation also for the IDF is that they don't, obviously they do not want civilian casualties, you would hope, but I think that there is kind of an element of the infrastructure destruction, just the level of destruction that has been inflicted to demonstrate that if this happens to you, it's kind of the US response after 9-11. If you attack us, we will we will respond and we will respond with all force and we will respond with force that may be even disproportional, but you do not do this because you should fear this. And um, not to pass any value judgment on that in either direction, just to say, I think that that, that is an element that Israel has been kind of, it's not a primary focus, but I don't think that it is, it escapes the planners on the Israeli side. No, and then I think- If I may, you're absolutely spot on. Um, there is no diplomacy without you know, there. There is there's linkage in all those uh, among all those elements of power. You don't have diplomacy unless you have the threat of force. If diplomacy is not going to work, and that threat of force is not just military, it could be economic punishment, sanctions, very deep sanctions. It could be military force. It could be an information campaign that becomes in today's world that just self generates itself. You know, generative AI, and all of a sudden you're, you're in the world of trying to respond to accusations in a way that you're ill-equipped. So there has to be punishment as a result of a failure to achieve diplomatic objectives. Yeah. And I think that the other follow-on to that is though, with the degree of destruction, the destruction of infrastructure on the ground is going to make it very hard for whoever is that follow-up authority, um, whoever is on the ground trying to be that second state or that second political organization that is going to have to move on after Hamas, I think it's going to be doubly difficult um, given kind of the scale of the destruction. Yeah, and, and you know, you look, you look at, if you were to compare Ukraine to Gaza, mm -hmm. when the fighting in Ukraine ends at some point, and it will, the international community will dive into Ukraine in an effort to fix infrastructure, alter the lives of millions, try to create, a, help create the Ukrainians help recreate their society, bring this country back to life. That will be an opportunity for the world to engage and they will. I'm not saying when that'll happen in Gaza, it hasn't in the past. I mean, I, I, I would demure to Peter to figure out in Gaza, what is the likelihood at some point that the international, that the, the market forces will arrive in Gaza because they see it as an opportunity, not a disaster that they are now going to stick themselves with. I, I, I don't know how that happens. There is no precedent in that in, in Gaza. How does that work? It's been essentially the purview of non-governmental organizations that have done magnificent work, the United Nations, which has done great work, but it is not a solution going forward and it's not comparable at all to what we would see, um, what we will see in Ukraine. Oh, thank you, sir. And thank you, Maria, for that. Peter, I'll pass it to you. I mean, obviously, as this continues to evolve, we will eventually come to a point where you know, there is an extended ceasefire uh, and then a reconstruction effort, uh, likely involving other partners in the region, um, like both Maria and Spider have said. But from a macroeconomic implication for the region and also more broadly, what are your thoughts on what happens when that starts to occur? Yeah, again, I think having listened to this, we're still, from a market's perspective, watching how do the Saudis react? Do the Saudis continue on the path that they were before this event occurred? So Abraham Accord, et cetera. So far they seem on that path, so that's good. Any change in that would be a little bit nerve wracking. 
Obviously, anything that really implicates Iran and escalates with Iran is still the big worry because they are shipping a lot of oil to China. That would have to get cracked down. Um, clearly, they would be a much more you know, vicious enemy to face, and it would seem much more difficult for Israel to do that without direct involvement from the U.S. So I think that's probably what we're watching most closely. In the background, we are hearing more and more about supply chains, more and more people not wanting to ship through the region. So I think that's kind of the secondary concern, and that seems to be occurring even within the stalemate. So I think we're looking right now, kind of two things are escalation, but even with this relative stalemate, what's going on, I am hearing more and more, you're seeing more information about potential supply chain disruptions as people decide to shift their transportation away from the region. And then I gotta be honest, I'm sitting here listening to this discussion, and the one thing that keeps coming up to me is what have our enemies learned I'm honestly really concerned that our enemies have learned how quickly they can turn international community against us. And I'm looking a little bit at Taiwan, where we call it Taiwan, much of the rest of the world already calls it Taipei. Even we somehow have decided that it's one country, two systems. How are we really gonna defend Taiwan if China starts to escalate around that? Aren't we gonna get into the same sort of world reaction where whatever we think no longer matters, because half the world says it's Taipei, and they are going to point out to us saying, well, you already said it's one country, two systems. Why are you so aggressively denying that? And so I'm worried that how what we've seen play out in Israel and the international reaction and even domestic reaction, I don't think was as expected that people have very quickly pushed back on Israel's ability to fight Hamas. Does this send messages to China, Russia, other foreign countries that maybe they have much more ability to sway international favor against us and our allies. Yeah, Peter, it's a good question. And General Marks, I'll turn it over to you. What are your thoughts on as we enter into 2024, you know, China's ability to continue to rattle the saber, obviously continuing exercises around Taiwan. Uh, the exercises in September of this year were some of the biggest ever, um, you know, effectively simulating a blockade of Taiwan. Obviously, the United States is well-positioned uh, in the region with additional forces. But what are your thoughts as we enter 2024 on potential escalation with China over Taiwan? Yeah, great, great points by Peter. Thank you. And Brett, good question. And I'm, to Peter's point, the fact that it has been with China since and Taiwan since 79, uh, um, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act of one country, two systems, that the world might suddenly start to scratch its head about what's, what's the big deal here. Um, China's just trying to establish a level of, of uh, political ownership that has been acknowledged over the course of the last four decades anyway. What, what are we all worried about? Um, the, the challenge is that we're seeing right now, as described, the Chinese military continues to be very, very provocative against Taiwan. And I think, as we've discussed many times, I think the Chinese would um, be overjoyed if the if the Taiwanese military shot down a Chinese aircraft or sunk Chinese naval vessel, and then the the narrative, the global narrative, would then turn on Taiwan in a heartbeat. To Peter's point, and they'd say, "What what is the issue here? Why is Taiwan now being the aggressor?" And the narrative, re regardless of how we view it, and regard well, regardless of what the facts are. In many cases, 
facts do not matter, as we've just seen relative to what's going on in, in, um, in Gaza right now. But the international community will be incredibly vocal and incredibly visible in terms of if that incident were to occur in terms of their lack of support for anything other than a peaceful reunification. Let's write the table. Let's, let's make sure everything is as it should be when clearly it has never been that way. You know, uh, the, the challenge with Taiwan is historical. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not a, um, a nation that was cut from mainland China and has ever had a, the strongest affiliation with Beijing. So over the, over, over the course of time, we could see the, this being a real possibility, but I am of the opinion and belief that it's not the time for China now to act on the reunification with, or the liberation as they call it with Taiwan um, militarily. There are other ways that they can do that as we've discussed diplomatically and economically, move the dial, move the political uh, climate in a way that Taiwan will eventually want to be, or will feel like they have no choice other than to be rejoined in some way, reunified in the, in the view of the, of the communist Chinese with the mainland. Well, and if I may, if I can follow up on that, kind of to tie those two together a little bit, I think that, Spider, what you said about the facts not necessarily mattering is really, really important in terms of narratives and what Peter was referring to as well, that now with kind of the social media narrative and how quickly that spreads and with, you know, kind of that background of AI and social media bots, it's so easy to switch a narrative, to turn a narrative, if, an, if a country, say, Russia is very good at this, but to push a specific narrative that is kind of in, hits certain buzzwords. I, we've saw, we saw this in Ukraine where there was a lot of push for, oh, well, we need peace at any cost. Like the, the fighting needs to stop. There's these messages that are very, very, that are suited to social media, that are suited to people reposting them and sharing them. And once you have that kind of narrative going, that does inevitably affect public opinion, which in, in turn affects uh, political leadership, particularly in democracies. Um, authoritarian regimes will do what they will, but I think the democratic states are really, really vulnerable to that. And so I think that those narratives are going to be something to watch um, and how they differ from the facts as we go into these elections. Yeah, it, what we're seeing in, in Gaza, for example, is the Israelis clearly are winning the, the tactical war, but they're losing the information war. And the information war is, it's, it's akin to, it's analogous to microwave diplomacy. I mean, you, you get a result instantaneously. Mm -hmm. um, we're, and we're catching ourselves into these incredibly tight cycles of action, reaction, counteraction. Um, that's what th that's what defines this today. And I see that happening relative to China's desires, strategic objectives stated very clearly. And the thing about the Chinese is they tell you exactly what they're going to do. Listen to what they say, read what they write. They tell you they're telegraphing every one of their moves. And they want to rectify. They want to liberate Taiwan. How they do it is entirely up to us to help shape. It's not up to them. It's up to us, the international community led by the United States, to figure out what our partners and our allies can do to establish what that potential change looks like and what the timeline looks like. Um, that's that. But the but the challenge is, as you've described so well, 
the narrative is so quick and changes so immensely and gathers so much momentum so quickly, that's what makes it most dangerous. But the but the good thing of that is you can have a you can have a swell of of protests or disagreements that as quickly as they rise, they dissipate. Um, and I think what we're seeing potentially with Israel is not that. I think we're seeing an arc up in terms of disagreement, total disagreement with how Israel is prosecuting that war. How the United States engages with Israel will dictate how that changes going forward. Got it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Maria. Peter, I'll pass over to you. As we talk a lot about the macroeconomic um, situation with China, especially between the United States and China, uh, following the meeting uh, that President Xi and President Biden had in San Francisco a few weeks ago, what were some of your key takeaways? Obviously, military to military communications being reestablished. That's a big one on the military side, but from a macroeconomic uh, side of the house, what were some of your key takeaways and what do you hope for in the coming weeks uh, with respect to U.S.-China economic relations? Yeah, thanks a lot, Brett. And again, I think just like the prior discussion, not all of this do I necessarily agree with, but I think we're having to look at what narratives can be playing out both domestically but also globally. So I think as we head into election year, the president's clearly going to want a strong economy, right? A strong economy into an election always does well for the incumbents. And so I think with inflation pressures existing, with the slowdown in China, with the delinking, decoupling, however you want to phrase it, I think you'd like to see some of those things reduce ahead of the election. So what I'm looking at is range of outcomes. The mill-to-mill -mill conversation is very good. That seems like step one. The other areas that I can see some changes coming from us are one on tariffs. Many of the advisors to the Biden administration were advisors when to that administration and to Obama's administration before that, when Trump put in the tariffs, they were generally against tariffs at the time. So they probably has some level of support from the economists advising him to reduce tariffs. So I think that would be seen as productive, something that would you know, reward global trade. And whether you put the, reduce the tariffs or just put a path in place to say tariffs will be reduced, I would see some way of doing it to tie it to Chinese prices so that we could claim, hey, by reducing these tariffs, prices are going to come down in the U.S. That's good for the economy, helps inflation. So I'm looking for something along those lines. And then at the other side of it, I think we all agree that we have to keep a certain level of technology away from China. Anything that's going to be very influential on AI that could be used for military. Having said that, there's this broad spectrum of chips available. And I think we're going to have to figure out maybe more clearly what is a no-go and what's tolerable to sell to China. I think the chip companies need to sell to China. Somewhere around 40% of chips, I think, get sold into China and then sold back to U.S., incorporated into some form of good or product. So I think there's room to have a more clearly defined bandwidth there. Um, you've seen some of the stock prices of the big chip makers react to every headline. So I think that could be a positive thing where you clearly define what's a no-go, but what's available to China. And maybe the administration errs on something slightly more good for the economy and growth. So those are kind of the two things. I think um, we will see that military posture where we are treating the strategic competitor remain important. I think the one area we can give on and really benefit China is agriculture. It's one area that we are still well ahead of them in terms of production and it serves one of their needs. So I think that, but stepping away from all of this, I keep coming back to 
We have to look what China's doing from their perspective. And clearly their economy's slowing. You see that across the board in terms of the data. Um, their real estate market is slumping. So look for China to figure out ways to try and sell their products globally. It's something they're going to reach out to. It's in line with what we've seen them doing in terms of more geopolitical action. Again, two or three years ago, I don't remember China intervening and getting the Saudis to talk to Iran. Even in Russia, Ukraine, they're the only ones talking to both parties. So I'm looking for China to try and sell their brands a little bit more because that's their out. And I don't think as Americans, we often think about, well, what's China's way out other than dealing with us? And making the assumption, I think it's a fair assumption that U.S. companies are not in a rush to put new factories into China, that they're not in a rush to really re-engage China, given the past 10 years of history. So if that's not on the table, what does China do? And I think it's engaging these other countries, the countries where they have commodity deficits to, where they can try and sell their products. So I think that's going to be the big story of next year and the year after. But right now, expect some thawing of the relationship because it suits our agenda, um, or I guess maybe not our agenda, but the incumbents. The incumbents have that ability to influence things. Hey, Peter, let me let me ask you a question if I can. You know, you the one thing we, we've commented on before is that we we have discussions like this and we don't talk about India as one of the initial um, challenges or one of the opportunities for the United States to um, move in a, in a different direction that's certainly more advantageous for both of those nations, incredibly powerful and entrepreneurial nations. So when you talk about limiting tech transfer with China, do you see the possibility that limiting tech transfer may be difficult it's always difficult when you apply sanctions and or tariffs. But maybe a complementary piece to that is we increase our relationship along those technological lines, entrepreneurial technological lines with India as a way to counter China's efforts um, similarly. Yeah, I, I think we have to figure out a way to work better with China, understanding that China will deal with Russia as it sees fit. China, sorry, India will deal with Russia as they see fit. India will deal with China as they see fit. So I think we have to go into this eyes wide open that India is going to do what's good for India, but there are a lot of places that that can overlap. And I think we can't let fears that, well, if we do this with India, then India does this to Russia or China, we lose out. I think we've got to accept this at face value. Here's what we can do with India. Here's how we can propel ourselves forward. And there is a lot of optimism for there. I think the growth that's coming from India, they have a great system. You know, NVIDIA is investing a lot of money over there. So that, to me, is the way forward. It's figuring out how much we can do with them, doing as much as possible, and fully understanding, though, that they are not a true ally in the sense that they will do everything we want them to do. They will do some things that we may not want them to do because it's their interest. But let's not, you know, cut off the nose to spite the face. Let's figure out how much we can do with India because we really also do want a presence in that region. And with our presence slipping from China as a kind of manufacturing hub, that would be such a good area for us to, you know, re-engage in. Yeah, it's all about diplomatic triangulation, I, I, I think. Um, and in military terms, if you're going to be defensive in terms of your posture relative to China, you have to have the ability to regain the offensive. So regain the offensive asymmetrically with India, which enhances your defensive posture against China. Maybe that's a bit arcane, but in my mind, I see that we need to be able to do both. And you, you've described it so very well. And relationships are never perfect, right? It's like anything in life. There, there are going to be incredibly difficult times within those relationships. What do you have in common that strengthens the bond that allows you to get over those bumps in the road? 
Absolutely. Thank you, sir. In, in our final couple of moments here, I um, just want to touch briefly, uh, obviously, on the war between Russia and Ukraine as we enter, well, we are in the winter months and we enter in 2024 uh, with U.S. support continuing uh, as well as NATO support. That support will not continue forever. Obviously, as Spider has said many times, Zelensky does not have as long as it takes to complete this fight. So as we wrap up the podcast today, Spider, I'll, I'll pass it over to you and then Maria and then Peter for some concluding thoughts around Russia and Ukraine. How do we see U.S. and Western support into 2024? Now, can Putin effectively wait the West out in this situation uh, and where we things where we see things going from there? And Spider, I'll pass it to you. Yep. Thank you, Brett. Um, I, I think what we're seeing right now in U Ukraine, unfortunately, is I hate to use the term stalemate, but in, in tactical terms, what we see is a stalemate. Uh, Russia has reinforced its positions in the Donbass, the landmass, and in Crimea. Ukraine has been incredibly creative in terms of its offensive operations against Russia, but has not been able to meet its objective to dislocate or to give the incentive for the Russian forces to depart. Um, I think the ultimate outcome in this particular fight is an acknowledgement on the part of President Zelensky that what he is confronted with right now is probably the best solution that he's going to achieve. I understand his desire to remove all Russian forces from Ukraine. That has He has not been successful. And I don't know how much time it's going to take for him to create, regenerate, build a military a three and create a three-dimensional fight that can dislocate those Russian forces. And that's the, that's the key element right now. NATO has been completely behind Ukraine in terms of its fight. Um, the support has been quite phenomenal. The challenge, obviously, is that going to be something that remains in place, or will there be some degree of atrophy within the NATO partners, within the EU, in terms of support for Ukraine? So I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that a brokered ceasefire of some sort, so that you can have a separation of powers, an acknowledgement that 20% of Ukraine belongs to Russia, it becomes normalized, not dissimilarly from what happened with the Donbass and Crimea as a result of the 2014 invasion. It was normalized. In, in a sense, it wasn't acknowledged um, globally, but it was accepted as a norm. I think that's where we're moving right now. That's politically uh, very dangerous for Zelensky to say that, but it's also it's also recognition that Ukraine has to be able to move forward. It needs to rebuild its infrastructure. It needs to regain a position in a community of nations. It can't simply be um, surviving at the behest and largesse of other nations. It has to be able to stand on its own. It has demonstrated incredible resilience. That needs to be applauded. It needs to be captured. We need to learn from that kind of an example. But we also have to have a real politic, politic view of what we're looking at here, which is Russia has achieved an advantage. It has the law of large numbers. It is not going away. And the Ukrainian forces in Zelensky has not given Putin any reason to not remain where he is. What the, what the Ukrainian forces have been able to achieve is an incredibly strong military position that has kept the Russians from advancing on the ground beyond where they are right now. Putin knows that. Putin knows this is a defensive fight. Putin knows he's not going to be able to push any farther. What he's going to do is to continue to try to destroy the infrastructure of Ukraine, weaken the will of the Ukrainian people over the course of time. That's where we are right now. 
Thank you. If I can jump on that, uh, there's, I think there's a couple of things that have been happening recently that I think are really interesting and are going to be somewhat determinative on what happens next. Because I agree with Spider that in, in a lot of ways, we're at a stalemate, unfortunately. Um, I worked extensively with the Ukrainian military before. It really pains me to say that. I do want to highlight a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. There were some videos coming out on Telegram of Ukraine attacking Wagner positions in Africa. They weren't attributed. They weren't, it, no one said it was Ukraine, but if you pay attention closely, you can see, which I thought was really interesting that they're trying to hit kind of where the money is. Um, the other one was their securing of several bridgeheads on the Kherson. Like I, that, it doesn't mean anything right now, but it, they're still going, they're trying. I think that what is going to mean the most is Putin's security in his position in Russia. There have been a lot of rumors about his health, um, but it looks like recently he's kind of strengthened his hold on power. Um, last week, Russia declared all LGBTQ organizations and individuals extremists, which is an indication of, um, it could be an indication of both of strength or of weakness, but it is definitely a much stronger, much harsher move in terms of cracking down on anyone who is not a part of the government. And so it, we don't necessarily know what that means right now, but I think that those developments internally in Russia are going to be very, are going to determine a lot of what happens in Ukraine. Um, but without significant changes, I think internally in Russia, I, I think everything that you said, Spider, is exactly right, that there is going to have to be some acknowledgement that the borders aren't moving right now. I don't think I would necessarily call it a, that they belong to Russia, but they are occupied by Russia. And that is kind of, it's it's a fact uh, right now. And even if Ukraine continues over the next decades to try and regain its territory back, whether through military or diplomatic means, there does need to be something because if we're seeing the delays with EU funding, with UK funding, with American funding for the Ukrainian military, and you just can't operate an economy when you are when you have a war economy. Everything is being directed to the war effort, and that's not sustainable, and that's not that's not feasible long term. And so I, I am hopeful that the U.S. government, that the House and that the U.K. and the EU are all able to get aid through because I think it would be a, a shame to let Ukraine kind of falter on its own because it's it's done so much. And honestly, I think it's done so much to protect the security of all of us, of all of these donor states. Um, in terms of a return on investment, the amount of money that we have spent on Ukraine to degrade the Russian military is probably the cheapest bang for your buck that you could get um, in confronting a force that we used to consider a near peer. Um, and then I think it was Blinken who said that we used to think Russia was the strongest, the second strongest military in the world. Now we realize that they're not, they're the, they're the second strongest military in Ukraine. Um, but I think that long-term Ukraine does need to be able to do this independently and be able to move forward in a way that is not dependent on aid from the West, particularly given next year's elections that we really don't know in any of these countries where that's gonna happen. And I, not just the West, the global South as well. We know that in India, things might change. India has been buying Russian oil and gas. We, we just don't know what the future holds, especially in democratic states. So Ukraine is going to have to find a way forward where it isn't kind of waiting and flapping around in the wind based on the narratives that are dominating the news in other countries.
And I would just add that I think they really need to get the focus on how do we get the people who have left the country to escape the fighting to come back. And so long as the fighting is going on, those people aren't coming back. And the longer they stay away, the more time they put their kids into school in other countries, the less likely they are to come back. So I think that's got to be a shift in this whole narrative is not just supporting the war effort, but you've got to figure out a way to turn to how do we rebuild this? How do we make this an economy where people want to leave Dublin or Poland or wherever they've gone to and come back to reinvigorate Ukraine? Because I think at some point as that drags on and on, you're going to be left with this empty shell where people have decided, well, I'm kind of comfortable where I am already. I'm not going back. So to me, the urgency of some sort of peace process, some sort of rebuilding should be you know, heightened for everyone maybe coming into the spring. I do think, though, that's going to be fairly inflationary. I think the rebuilding of Ukraine is actually going to be a huge draw on resources in Europe, especially if we tap into any of the Russian dollar reserves that we have held effectively captive since the um, invasion. That would pro provide the impetus to spend. And that's always one of the problems with rebuilding is how do you get the money to spend? And if it comes from some of that, not just that, you know, the IMF or donations, all of a sudden that rebuilding effort will be huge. It has to be huge. It has to be quick to get people to come back. But I think that will be fairly inflationary, particularly for Europe, as you go through that rebuilding. Two, three years from now, it'll be deflationary as Ukraine's economy gets back to full speed, as you, can, you don't have to build up the infrastructure because it's been rebuilt. But that repair time is going to take, you know, effort, money, uh, materials. So I think it's going to be a bit inflationary. People have to prepare for that. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Spider and Maria, as well, uh, for your participation today. We absolutely really appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we will continue to keep you posted with our future Around the World Report, sit reps, additional podcasts and webinars uh, coming in 2024 as well. Um, and we really appreciate all your support. Thank you, Brett, and thank you again to our listeners and our contributors. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in connecting with our geopolitical intelligence group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.